Hey, what's up, Vineyard? <laughs> Happy Palm Sunday. Okay. I'm Luke, and I just recently came on staff here as the director of Young Adults Ministries. And I just want to say before I say anything else that I've felt so welcomed and so encouraged by all of you here. Not only is this my dream job, but I was talking with Van and Dave the other day about how after every single service, I just feel so encouraged by everyone. People come up to me and talk to me and encourage me and compliment me. And it just felt so good to be welcomed from all three services. Um, the you know, type A personality Sunday morning, 930 people and all of you uh, sleeper inners <laughs> um, and the Saturday night people. So thank you all for that. Thank you for welcoming me. Um, I love it here. <laughs> So we're in this series about embracing an abundance mindset and rejecting the spirit of scarcity. And just as a quick review, the the scarcity mindset, which is spurred on by the spirit of scarcity, says there's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough energy. There's not enough money for me to do what God wants me to do. And I have to figure out how to get enough and figure all that out before I can obey what God is telling me to do. The abundance mindset says the opposite, that there is more than enough. And it's not my responsibility to figure out how to take care of all the little details. It's my responsibility to trust God. And he's got my back through it. So I can see right now, just some of you men going home to your wives and saying, Hey honey, I learned, I've been learning something really cool in church from Pastor Van and Wilson over the past couple weeks. And I'm not married, but I've been around enough married couples and seen enough sitcoms to kind of, <laughs> kind of know that the wife likes to hear that. You know, she likes to hear that uh, he's learned something at church. And so he says, yeah, you know, Van's been talking about how we need to embrace this abundance mindset And even if it looks like there's not enough, just say there's more than enough. And I've been looking in our budget right now. And I can see there is no way that we can fit a 2014 Camaro into our finances. But I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to have an abundance mindset here. There's more than enough. So tomorrow I'll be sitting behind the wheel of a 580 horsepower engine sports car. How's that sound to you? (laughs) And she's like, you know. That makes no sense. What are you talking about? To which he responds, whoa, spirit of scarcity. Don't respond to fear. There's more than enough. (laughs) And I say that just to clarify something. We are to have this abundance mindset when God is leading. As much as us guys would love for God to tell us, hey, go buy a brand new sports car. Um, This is for when God is leading is when we are to embrace this abundance mindset. And in all seriousness, this mindset, this changing the way, this change of our way of thinking is crucial for us as believers. And here's why. Satan's biggest trap is to get us to believe that we just have to get, we have to muster up enough willpower and just try harder and just be stronger in order to do a good work for God. That if we want to do a good Christian work, live a good Christian life, we just have to muster up this willpower and try harder in order to do that. And the scriptures 
don't say that we are transformed into people who look more like Jesus when we try harder, when we muster up willpower. Well, what do they say? Pretty famous verse, Romans 12, 2. I'm sure a lot of you could quote it. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're not transformed by mustering up willpower. We're not transformed by trying harder. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. You all know me, right? I don't need my name tag. Okay. (laughs) So I feel like a, a trap, the trap that many Christians, myself included, can fall into is this. We try hard for God and we fail. And then we allow ourselves to experience shame and condemnation in order to somehow motivate us to try harder so that we don't fail again. And so then we try harder, we fail harder, we feel condemnation again. We try harder, we fail, we feel condemnation. And this cycle just continues until we stop trying. And until we just kind of accept that God is disappointed in us and has abandoned us and we stop trying. That is the cycle that we cannot fall into. A real life example of this comes from the last place, the last church I worked at. I, uh, for two years before I came here, worked with high school students at what we call around here the Big Vineyard, I'm learning. And at the Big Vineyard um, with high school students, if you were to ask me, what is the one thing that high schoolers struggle with the most? Without a doubt, I would answer addiction to pornography. High school guys, and this is really for guys of all ages, but especially for high school guys, addiction to pornography is rampant right now. And I know when we hear that, we automatically think of this God-hating, rebellious adolescent. But that's not been my experience. No, these are young guys who love Jesus and who are memorizing scripture and reading their Bibles every day and praying for others. But that there's part of this life that they're struggling in. And because of that, I've had countless conversations with high school guys about this very issue. And they always come to me and say the same thing. Luke, I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be looking at this, but I just don't have enough willpower. And I just, I can't, I'm not strong enough. I'm too weak. I don't know what to do. And when they say it to me, I let them kind of say everything they need to say before I say anything. When they say that, I say to them, Okay, um, well, actually, that's wrong, and you are strong enough. They're always taken aback, like, what do you mean? And I'll say, let me put it to you this way. If I were to say to you that there is a million dollars in it for you, if you can go three months without looking at porn, would you be able to do it? Always, they're like, oh, yeah, of course. I definitely could, yeah, for a million dollars? I definitely could, sure. I'm like, so willpower is not the problem. And this light bulb kind of goes off in their head. And for the first time, they're stepping out of this defeated mindset that I'm just not strong enough. I just can't do it into, well, yeah, yeah, I can do this. I do have God on my side. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's not like that's the magic fix to the problem. There are many other lies that have to be rejected. But the point is, the ones who have gotten free from this didn't get free because they tried super hard or because they, got, they mustered up enough willpower. It's because they changed the way they think. And that is the essence of 
putting our faith in God. It is changing the way we think. This idea that we don't have enough willpower, that we need more willpower, that is scarcity thinking. And the spirit of scarcity paralyzes faith, whereas the abundance mindset unleashes faith. So that is kind of a review of what we've been talking about for the past five weeks or so. And the kind of sect of this that I really want to focus in on this morning is the idea that, yeah, we need to make decisions with an abundance mindset, with a mindset that says there's more than enough, but we also need to carry out those decisions with that same abundance mindset. For example, if I was walking in the mall and I saw someone on crutches and I felt that urge within my heart to go pray for them to be healed, and I said, okay, God, I'm going to go do this. In that moment, I am operating out of an abundance mindset. I'm making a decision with an abundance mindset. But if I get up to them and say, hey, excuse me, this might sound weird, but I want to pray for you to be healed. But I don't really know if you're actually going to get healed or not. You might not get healed. Um, We both have to have like a certain level of faith and, you know, your faith might be a little bit lower. So I'll try to like heighten my faith up. But, you know, some people don't even believe this healing stuff happens. And sometimes I think they might be right. So you might not get healed just on principle. Can I pray for you? In that moment, yeah, you made the decision with the abundance mindset, but then the second we went up, that I went up to the person, I switched back to scarcity as I started talking to them. We have to have an abundance mindset, not only in making the decision, but also in carrying out the decision. How do we do this? Well, we do this by changing the way we think, which that's what the word repent means. I know that has a lot of religious baggage, but when we repent of something, We are simply changing the way we think, not mustering up willpower, changing the way we think. To have this abundance mindset, we've got to change the way we think and trust God, not the outcome. And isn't this what all of us guys just want people to do when they're riding the cars with us? You know, we don't stop for and ask for directions because we just want you to trust us, not the outcome. Whether we get there at 2 p.m. or midnight, just trust us. You know, that reminds me of a story, actually. Um, When I was a freshman in college, me and a bunch of friends drove down to Florida for spring break. There was a guy car and a girl car. Guy car left, drove about 12 hours, got there. Girl car gets on the highway, 75, at the same time as us. And they drive for four hours until one of them thinks, hmm, it's kind of strange we haven't passed the Ohio River yet. (laughs) All of a sudden, a sign, welcome to Cleveland, they see. (laughs) They had driven four hours north on 75 instead of south. So they turned around, go four hours south, and then cross the Ohio River eight hours after they left. Took us 10 minutes. And uh, and they turned a 12-hour drive into a 20-hour drive. (laughs) So that really doesn't have anything to do with my talk. I just kind of got off on a tangent there. Anyways, what are we talking about? Yes. (laughs) Change your mindset by trusting God, not by putting your faith in a particular outcome. So, aren't we lucky that we have a God who we can always count on, who doesn't get lost, who knows where he's going, who we can trust. And that's the whole essence of this thing. We're not, when we have, when we make this abundance mindset decision, we're not just convincing ourselves that everything is going to be okay. 
It's not like I give money for the Freedom Project and then I'm just kind of sitting there thinking, okay, I know I'm going to get the money. I know I'm going to get the money. It's going to come through. I'm going to be fine. The money's going to come. It's not about convincing us ourselves to believe a concept. It's about putting our trust in God. God, I don't care what the outcome is. I trust you. This is what you're telling me to do. That is the essence of the abundance mindset. So why should we do this? Well, this, I'm going to say this, it's kind of a loaded statement and then I'll break it down. But when we have the abundance mindset, we are, we allow ourselves to manifest the will of God. The abundance mindset allows for the manifestation of God's will here on earth. When I say manifest, I'm talking about a spiritual reality breaking into the natural realm. So for example, Jesus, the son of God, who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipresent, eternal, necessarily existent. This spiritual reality, the son of God became flesh in that becoming flesh. A spiritual reality was manifested here in our world. A little more relatable example, when we pray for someone to be healed and they're healed, that is God's supernatural power in the spiritual realm, breaking into the natural realm. It's a manifestation. So when we operate out of an abundance mindset, we manifest, we take a spiritual reality, which is God's will, and we manifest it here in this planet. Now that's kind of a lot of philosophical thinking and you know, theology. I want to, I want to illustrate that with a story from the new Testament. And this story comes out of acts one. Jesus has just resurrected and now he's about to ascend. And before he ascends, he tells his disciples, wait here in Jerusalem. Don't go out and preach or heal or do any of that stuff. Wait here in Jerusalem for the Holy spirit. And then he will show you what you should do. And so they do it. They wait for 10 days praying in this upper room and the Holy Spirit comes. Now that doesn't really sound like a, like a super um, crazy story, but I will argue that the disciples had to grasp onto an incredible abundance mentality in that moment. And I think we can only understand that once we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. So let's do that. For three years, the disciples had lived an incredibly fascinating, exciting, wondrous life. Imagine walking around on the streets with Jesus, the Son of God. There are so many things that I could mention about that. One of the uh, cooler things is that Jesus, in Mark 6, gives the disciples the authority to heal the sick, cast out demons, cleanse lepers, raise the dead. And I want, to put, I want to push a pause button on this real quick. I heard this from a teacher lately. And I think it's really important to consider. The disciples did not know that they were in Bible times. So it's not like Peter heard Jesus give him authority and then said, oh, look, Mark 6, time to go heal. No, they did not know they were in Bible times. It would be just as crazy as if Jesus appeared in this room and told all of us, hey, you have the authority to go heal every disease and every sickness. And then we went out and we actually saw everyone we touched be healed. They did not know that they were in Bible times. So they received all this authority to do, go do these wild things. I remember when I saw my first, well, the craziest healing I've ever seen. 
It was in this room, actually. How many of you were here when Robbie Dawkins came in January? Yeah, really incredible, incredible night. Um, after the night finished up, I was hanging out with some of my friends right over here in this section. And I was telling them a story about a really powerful encounter I had praying for some people in the ministry time. Then Jamie, who was Robbie Dawkins' intern, I guess I should say Robbie Dawkins is a vineyard pastor who is a healing evangelist um, and spends all of his time teaching people how to exercise the power of God. So Robbie Dawkins was here. Jamie, his intern, comes up to us as I'm telling this story and says, hey, you all want to see a miracle? I'm like, yeah, sure. So (laughs) we all walk over and on a chair right here in this section, actually, was a woman with her back up against the chair, her legs sticking out, and one of her, her right foot was about an inch shorter than her left foot. And Jamie um, was going to pray for that foot to grow out. Now, if you have one foot that's shorter than the other, or if you know someone who does, you know that causes a lot of back pain because of that, because you're always uneven. It just causes your back to be off kelter. So they were praying for it to grow so that back pain would cease and that the body would be restored to its original intent, God's intent for it. Jamie decides to grab a random guy from the crowd to be the one who prays. He doesn't actually pray himself. He grabs someone else who's never done it before and has him pray. And I was standing right in front of it and I'm not exaggerating a single detail. This was crazy. The leg was about an inch shorter and Jamie leads this random guy through a prayer. He says, you know, Father, we love you. Father, we love you. We thank you for healing power. We thank you for healing power. Right leg, I command you to grow in Jesus' name. Right leg, I command you to grow in Jesus' name. And I'm telling you, right before my eyes, this leg grew out. Now, if you don't believe me, there's actually a video of it on Facebook. And within that first night, Caleb took it. Within that first night, it got shared 200 times. And there's this huge controversy. You know, people who don't believe in God don't like seeing miracles caught on film. Um, and my head exploded. I, you, know, I just, you hear me laughing super obnoxiously loud in the background of it. Um, so if you ever see it, yeah, every time I watch it, I get excited and embarrassed at the same time. So I'm just like laughing. I didn't know what to say. My friend Crystal, just t- the second it grew out, just started weeping right there on the spot. And that was kind of funny. So um, <laughs> she just fell to the ground and started crying. Anyways... This was a crazy, crazy, miraculous act of God that I, that I witnessed right in front of me. And my point in telling you that is that the disciples were seeing this stuff every single day. And not only legs growing, they're seeing people who have been blind from birth receive their sight back, deaf receive their hearing, people who've been paralyzed since birth, lifting them up to their feet, muscles growing right there on the spot by the power of God crazy stuff. They got to heal the sick. They got to cast out demons. How many of you know why demons cause their victims to growl and foam at the mouth and, and crawl around the ground, do all that degrading stuff? It's because they want to humiliate them. They are afflicting a child of God, someone who's made in God's image. And they wanted to fame and degrade that as much as they can. Imagine getting the authority to go out and free people from, the, from those things. Going up to them saying, demons, get out in Jesus' name. And these people who have been afflicted for years are just freed. They got to cast out demons. They got to cleanse lepers. Leprosy kind of just referred to any skin disease back then. 
Imagine walking up to someone, rashes all over the arms and the chest and the face and blisters and boils and oozing and just lots of pain. And imagine being that leper and seeing these guys you don't know come up to you and say, hey, God loves you and he wants to heal you. And you're like, no, he doesn't. I've been told my whole life that I'm unclean before God. I can't even go worship in the synagogue. And they walk up to him. They touch, his, they touch your skin. Say, be healed in Jesus' name. And your skin just clears up. Your face clears up. Chest clears up. Imagine being able to be a part of that. Or what about all the miraculous stuff that Jesus performed? Like in Mark 4 when he calms the sea. Now, I've been out at open ocean before. And it's kind of, it's kind of freaky. For those of you who've been there, you can probably relate. You can't see any land. A four-footer hits the 30-foot boat, and you're like, whoa, don't really like that. The disciples in Mark 4 are in the Sea of Galilee, and there is a crazy storm brewing. There's 12-foot rollers hitting their boat. And their boat is like, you know, there's no 30-foot fishing boat. It's like a canoe or like a little rowboat or something. And the wave hits, and they all have to lean one direction to keep the boat from capsizing. Because if that boat capsizes... Their hope, their hope is gone. Their kids are orphaned. Their wives are widowed. And the other ones are bailing water out as fast as they can. The other one's using the paddle to stabilize the boat. And Jesus, I guess he thought, well, good as time as any for a nap. So he's in the back of the boat taking a nap. And they look at him, Jesus, what are you doing? Wake up, we're about to die. Come save us. So Jesus wakes up, looks around, says, be still. And boom, it's calm. Thunder and lightning stop. Clouds part, waves gone. It's calm as glass on that water. Imagine seeing that. What about when Jesus raised the, re- the religious leader Jairus' daughter from the dead? If you don't know about that story, Jesus takes his three main disciples, Peter, James, and John, into this room where this 12-year-old girl had just died. Man, what a depressing sight that must have been. Her parents standing there looking at their daughter die way before her time. And there's people in the house mourning and crying. It's just such a sad, depressing sight. Jesus looks around and he says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. They mock him. He says, get out. So he sends all those people out. It's just him, his three disciples, and the parents. He goes, goes up to the girl. He says, little girl, get up. Eyes open. She stands up. The scene just went from complete hopelessness and despair to unbelievable joy and celebration. Imagine the parents receiving their daughter back, hugging her, crying, tears of joy, ecstatic, blown away, speechless, probably laughing obnoxiously loud. Imagine being there for all that stuff. This had been the disciples' life for three years. Just one exciting thing after the other. And We know, um, scholars say that this section of Mark 5, in which in about a day, Jesus casts out 4,000 demons out of one guy. He heals a woman of a bleeding disorder and he raises this girl from the dead. Scholars will say that that is kind of a snapshot of what Jesus's ministry looked like. That's kind of what the author intended. So they were seeing this stuff every single day. These signs, these healings, these demons being casted out, these deliverances. They were seeing this stuff every day. What an exciting, powerful ministry and life they had. Then Jesus dies and resurrects from the dead. The greatest sign and wonder of all. And the disciples are blown away 
more than they thought they ever could be. And then Jesus gathers his disciples together and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm giving it to you. Go, change the world. Baptize people in the name of the triune God. And don't worry, I'll be with you the whole time, backing you up. Oh, and by the way, what I want you to do right now is stay in Jerusalem where people are trying to kill you. And don't go do any, any of that healing or preaching or discipling or casting out of demon stuff. No, actually what I want you to do is go sit in a room crowded and just pray all day long and wait for this other guy named the Holy Spirit. He's, he's going to be coming. All right, see ya. And he starts to ascend. It says in Luke 1 that God had to send angels down because the disciples were just staring up into the sky for so long. And I don't know what was going on there, but I speculate that they're like, what do you mean? Wait, we didn't get that last instruction. Come back down. Come back down. You need to re-explain that to us. Don't, don't go heal. Don't go preach the gospel. Go sit in a room and pray. What? That is the important thing to understand in the story. The disciples had lived this incredibly exciting crazy life. And now Jesus is leaving and telling them, go sit in a room and pray and just wait. But Jesus's word was enough for them. So they did it. They went and sat in that room. Lord Jesus, we wait for you. We love you. Send your comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. They do that for a day. Nothing happens. They go back again. Day two, Jesus, we love you. We wait for you. We trust you. Send your comforter. Nothing happens. See, this is the carrying out of the decision. When they decided not to leave Jerusalem and start doing ministry, that was making the decision with the abundance mindset. Now they're in the carrying out. And how many of you know that the carrying out can be the hardest part? Almost always. Day three, day four, day five. I can imagine Andrew, Peter's brother, sitting there praying. And all of a sudden hearing a mouse scurry by. I was like, what was that? What was that? I think, we, I think I heard him. I think he's here. Peter's like, no, shut up. That was a mouse. Keep praying. Lord Jesus, we love you. We wait for you. Send your comforter. It gets to day eight. And I imagine that here's where the doubts start to creep in. Did Jesus really say, sit in a room and pray? We've never done that before. Why would he have us do that now? That doesn't make any sense. Day nine comes, and then the doubts get more intense. Did he really calm that storm? Or was that a coincidence? Was that girl really dead? Or was she just faking it? Did we really heal those people? And they're doubting God. But the disciples hold on to Jesus' word. And I imagine it was tough just to sit in that room and pray all day. I know for me, I pray 10 minutes by myself and I'm kind of done. I'm like, all right, good prayer sesh. Now on to my day. I love praying for people, but the interceding thing isn't really my thing. But anyways, they're praying and day 10 comes and it says in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit came like a rush of wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. Fire manifests above all their heads and comes upon them. They all start speaking in different languages, praising God. They walk outside and this big crowd forms at this site. Peter stands up and says, this is what was prophesied by the Old Testament about when the Lord will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And then he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you'll receive this gift and 3,000 people come to Christ right on the spot. Two days later, him and John are walking through the temple. There's this guy who's been lame since birth. They heal him in Jesus' name. And 5,000 more men come to Christ with their families. We got a 20,000 person megachurch in Jerusalem a week after the Holy Spirit has come. And we see that it was God's will for there to be a revival in Jerusalem that would then be the epicenter for this new movement, which would be called the Christian faith. And the disciples, by obeying him, allowed this to happen. It all started with them. Lord Jesus, we wait for you. We trust you. Send your comforter. They, their abundance mindset manifested God's will in Jerusalem in that moment. And it wasn't because they were so convinced that, it was, that the Holy Spirit was going to come soon. They didn't know it was going to be 10 days. It might have been years in their minds. But the outcome was not the important thing. The important thing was that their master, their rabbi, Jesus, had told them, wait in Jerusalem. Now, it's easy to talk about this for me to say it up here, but it's a whole other thing to actually do it, to actually carry out this abundance mentality, to trust God, not the outcome. It's a whole other thing to actually do it. And I was thinking about this and praying about this, and it reminded me of a story um, that, my, that I remember from my childhood. I was about seven or eight. My younger brother, Joey, was probably five. My youngest brother, Kyle, was two. And we were just running around in circles in the house, through the rooms, um, chasing each other, playing, whatever. And Kyle, the two-year-old, was running with his head kind of down like this, and just, just running like this. And he decided to go headfirst into the corner of a wall. And I remember he starts bleeding, and my dad and my mom realize what's happened. They throw him in the car, and my dad goes 80 through 35 mile per hour speed limits on the way to the hospital. And... They get there, and he's still bleeding, and they realize they have to stitch it up. And Kyle's too. He doesn't know what's going on, so he's moving back and forth and shaking his head and crying and screaming. And the doctors say to my dad, we need you to hold your son still so that we can stitch him up and get the numbing shot in. So my dad grabs Kyle, holds him still, and they, they start to put the shot in. And, and Kyle looks up to my dad and says, Daddy, why are you letting them hurt me? And my dad, you know, tears coming down his face, says, don't worry, Kyle, just trust me. This, this needs to happen. Just trust me. I've got you. And I think as Christians, or whether you haven't made that decision yet or not, oftentimes we look up and we say, Daddy, why are you letting them hurt me? I made this decision you told me to make. Why is everyone resisting me? Why is no one supporting me? Why is the, ch- the money not coming in? I feel like what God is saying is that just trust me. You don't know what's going on. You don't know the whole picture. I've got you. You can trust me. See, this is the essence of the abundance mindset. Trusting God despite what we're feeling, what we're seeing, what we're hearing. Not convincing ourselves to believe everything's going to be okay. Putting our faith in a person, in God. That's what this abundance mindset's all about. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We'll worship in just a moment. 
Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here in Jesus' name. And we declare together as a unified body that we are joining in with what you want to do in this time. God, we thank you that you've always been there for us. That you love us. We love you, Lord, and we're desperate for more of you. We need more of you, God. Give us strength in the waiting. Give us the ability to endure and to persist even when things are tough. We want to trust you, God. We put our faith in you. Hold our hand through the way.